Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church. And we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. We've been shaped by stories our entire lives. When we were younger, they were read to us at bedtime. They come from our teachers in class and friends in the hallways. We see them in our favorite movies and TV shows. We relate to them, visualize them, and share them. Jesus understood this and chose to teach through stories. And the stories of Jesus give life. His stories are called parables. And now we learn from these parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Good morning. If you're new with us today, thank you so much uh, for walking through unknown doors and being around new faces. Uh, we don't want to take that for granted. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. If it's your first time or first few times, you can let us know that you're with us by going to fbcsa.org slash connect. I'll even let you do that right now on your phone. It's just an easy way to let us know, hey, I was here um, and worshiped with you today so that we could make contact with you at a later time. And um, as you can tell, we are in the Gospel of Luke. And this actually is our last Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. We are wrapping up a 13-week series where we have received, listened to, and responded to many of the parables that Jesus told uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful series. So today, we're just wrapping that up. Now, next week, next week, we are beginning a brand new series in Job. When was the last time you read through Job? Last week, maybe? Or? Well, if not... Um, you can go ahead and plan for the next 13 weeks to read through Job. I'm excited to do that. I know it's going to offer a lot of challenges to us as we think about God and suffering. How, do, how does a good God manage suffering and, and how do we respond to that? So we can anticipate our next series in the book of Job. Now, as promised, uh, this week I posted a video on social media inviting um, all of you to ask questions uh, of the Gospel of Luke uh, and the parables that we've walked through as a way that we can just kind of wrap up our time together. In the past, we've done a panel where we've asked people about uh, what kind of impact has this series had on your life? What have you been trying to apply out of this series? We try to do something different by soliciting questions. We'll see how it goes in the future, but for now, I got one question. Got one question late last night via text, although Ethan tells me that he also asked a question, but I didn't see it. Of course, he couldn't remember what it was anyway. 
But, so I, I wanna just take a moment to answer uh, the one question I did receive, and this is in regards to the parable of the um, Good Samaritan and the motivations of the two uh, Levitical religious leaders who passed uh, the injured man along the way? Was it only because they just didn't care enough uh, to really stop, didn't want to get entangled in all that? Or were there, was there other motivations that might have led them to bypass and leave that man to die? So we know that we, can be, we should always be cautious of trying to read too much into Scripture, right? Um, and in fact, a lot of the parables usually just have one or two things to say. And so, uh, you know, we like to sometimes add a lot more than there actually is, but we also know that Jesus always taught in context. So he told stories that would immediately resonate with his listeners. So when they heard things like, Levitical priest or uh, someone who worked in the temple, they automatically knew what Jesus was implying and might have assigned motivations as to why they bypassed and went on their way rather than tending to the needs of this man who had been beaten and left to die. So, but my understanding um, is as we, as we look at all the different parables, that one of the things that Jesus was really trying to challenge and the groups of people he was really trying to challenge were those religious leaders. And he was really trying to challenge them about the culture that they were living in uh, and the culture of heaven. Now remember the culture of heaven was, um, the culture of heaven is we go out of our way to tend to the broken, to seek the lost, to restore, and we rejoice when they are found, right? So that's the culture, but the culture of the religious leaders of the day put more emphasis on power and influence than they did on actually caring for the hurting around them. So I think the motivations um, that of these two people that went on their way rather than caring for this really identified with that kind of culture that religious culture of I will choose position and power over people, right? So I think we can say, yes, they're the religious, they had religious motivations that if I touch this man, I may be unclean. Um, I might not be able to function in the responsibilities I have in the temple. And they chose power position over the broken person. Hopefully that helps Hopefully that helps. But I do think that that question uh, really sets us up for where we have been this whole series, is that Jesus consistently has invited his listeners, especially these religious leaders who chose power and position over seeking the lost and helping the broken, uh, to remind us that there is a culture of heaven that Jesus is trying to put on full display in these parables. Uh, that the father wants to mend the broken. He wants to find the lost. And that all of heaven rejoices uh, when the lost is found. And today's story paints a picture of the culture of heaven as well. Um, and so with that said, let's stand together and read just the first four verses of 
this text, Luke 19, verses 11 through 15. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what the prophets were. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. So help us to see and to hear and to obey. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Man, I really love Luke. Um, I love Luke because he tells us right from the beginning, he doesn't often do this, but he tells us right, right from the beginning as why Jesus is telling this particular kind of parable. And he tells us um, in verse 11, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. This whole parable's aim is to manage the expectation and the expectations of the people, as well as kind of set his own expectations for the people and to the people, right? So as you can imagine, or maybe you can't, um, the people at this time have been under Roman rule for a period and season of time. In fact, they've been under the rule of some other kingdom for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they, with great anticipation, are expecting God to fulfill his promise that one day he would restore them as a people and a nation and would rescue them out from under whatever empire is lording over them. And so Jesus comes along. He does incredible things. He teaches with power and authority. He questions the leadership. Even, even the Roman government that sometimes gets a little antsy about Jesus because here's another rebel that's leading the people. Well, the people, with great anticipation, were expecting that as Jesus was nearing Jerusalem, that now is the time that he would lead Israel out from under Roman rule and that God, through Jesus, would restore the political and geographical um, realm of Israel and bring final restoration. Jesus had to manage that, manage that expectation that they had of him. That's not what he was going to do. And so Luke tells us that Jesus is telling this story to clue them in on what his kingdom will be like, especially since as he nears Jerusalem, he's not about to become king in the way that they would have Envisioned. So the whole aim of this is to manage their huge expectations for them and to put it in proper perspective. But something that Jesus makes absolutely clear within this parable that we'll finish in a minute is that 
the kingdom of God has indeed come in Jesus. And now he has said that throughout the gospels, that the kingdom of God has come. But not only has it come, but it is also coming. In the same manner in this parable where this nobleman was sent off to a distant land to be crowned king and that he would be coming to sit on his throne, Jesus is also managing expectations to say in the same way, although I'm not gonna sit on my throne right now, I will be going away and I will receive my crown and I will be returning to sit on the throne. Jesus wants us to know, his listeners and us now, that he indeed is coming. And he's setting these new expectations that there's gonna be a season when he is gone, but believe me, he says, I will return in the same way that this king has returned. Of course, most of us know that Jesus has already foreshadowed this for us, even though the disciples and other listeners may not have understood. Even if we go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 40, uh, Jesus says this, you also must be ready all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. Um, Jesus was forecasting um, his whole ministry that there will be a time that he's away, but that he will indeed return. Uh, And then in uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, listen to this powerful, powerful uh, projection of Jesus. But he says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. And so Jesus is not managing new expectations. He has set this for them before, but now in this parable, he's telling a story in such a way that, listen, the kingdom of God is kind of like this nobleman that's gonna have to go away and be crowned, but he will return. You can be certain that this king will return, and Jesus' return is no different. I don't know about you, but um, don't we need those assurances now more than ever? Uh, we, we live in a world that is on fire. Uh, it's on fire in homes. It's on fire in nations. It's on fire in ideologies. It's on fire and falling apart everywhere. And if you're like me, you're wondering, Jesus, when are you going to return? Man, Hopefully you ache for the return of Jesus, for the king to sit upon his throne and to finally bring order and restoration, even judgment. And Jesus has promised to us that he points to in this parable that I may be gone for a season, but you can guarantee you can guarantee that I am coming and when I come, I will come in all the power and authority that has been given to me and I will be coming with all my angels. Isn't that incredible? When I come, I will come with all of my angels and I will sit on my throne as king. The king is coming. That's what Jesus is telling us here, telling these his disciples and those who are receiving this teacher that I, uh, teaching that I, I might not meet the expectations that you have for me right now. 
but I will be coming. And I'll be coming as king. That's not the only thing that we find in this text. Um, we also know from this text that in his absence, the nobleman gave his servants, 10 servants, distribute among them 10 pounds of silver, or your, your translation might have said one uh, mina. Um, so he distributes among his servants this money while he is gone, and he says to them in verse 13, my expectation is that you invest this for me while I am gone. And so I think something that we can take from this as his church is that Jesus, in the same way, who is the coming future king, uh, who will sit on his throne, In his absence, he has given to his church that he has invited the church to steward and invest in what he has given. Uh, We know from Romans chapter 8, 32 that, that, um, that the Father has given us the Son, that we have received Christ, the very word of God. He has given us Jesus and all that he means to us. He has given us his word, the the written word of God through which we know what Jesus is like and what he asks of us and what God has been like as he's revealed himself through all of creation and through his people and the law. We've received those things. We've received these gifts from the Lord that we're called to steward. We're in fact given particular gifts. Ephesians chapter four, verse three through eight. Paul says, listen, you know, we're all one in the gospel. We're all one in the Holy Spirit and in the baptism, but we're also all unique in that the Spirit of God has given each one of you particular gifts by the power of the Spirit of God. Some of you are gonna be exceptional teachers. Some of you are gonna be gifted with knowledge. Some of you are gonna be preachers. Some of you are gonna be artists. It's not an exhaustive list in Ephesians chapter four, but the point is this, is that the Spirit of God has given to the church varied gifts to use in his kingdom work. He's given to us. Jesus has given to his church. Even Paul will talk about this treasure that we have in jars of clay, right? That in Christ, we have been given this treasure that we have been called the steward. In fact, also he has given us an assignment Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, most of us could recite most of this. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Jesus has given to his church in the same way that this nobleman has given to his 10 servants. Here, I've given to this to you. I've trusted this to you. Now invest it, multiply it. And I'm gonna ask what's happened with my investment when I return. Those are the expectations that Jesus has for his church. As much as Jesus is trying to manage their expectations of him, Jesus is always also trying to say, listen, I have expectations of you too, that in my absence I have given to you in extraordinary ways, my grace, my mercy, my gifts, my assignment, my mission. I'll be faithful with it, invest it in the lives of other people. These things are clear for all of us as individuals and collectively and corporately as his church. This parable 
also lets us know that in the same way that the returning king will hold his servants accountable, Jesus will also hold us accountable with what he has given to us and the expectations he has placed on that kind of stewardship. Verses 14 and following, um, well, actually, let me start in verse 14. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 15, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. So the king is about to hold them accountable. He wants to know, what have you done? What have you done with what I have given you? What have you done? So he calls the first servant. The first servant says, listen, I've invested your money and I have reaped tenfold. Tenfold. And, and the king is like, wow, that's impressive. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you be governor of 10 cities. The next guy comes up and says, listen, I, I've been able to increase it by fivefold. He says, well done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you be governor of five cities. And the third servant, he doesn't even get through all 10 servants. I don't think he had to. The first three, he really set a clear expectation for the others of what was about to come. The third guy comes up and says, listen, I was so terrified of you because I know what kind of king, uh, nobleman you were and king that you are, that you, you take stuff that's not even yours and which is all bogus. We're about to find out that in a second. But he says, I just kept it at home and wrapped it up in a blanket. And the king's like, you're, you're a wicked servant. You're a wicked servant. What, is it, what does he say in verse 22? You wicked servant, the king roared. He was upset. Your own words condemn you if you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvest crops I didn't plant. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. So we have this picture of this third servant who says with his words, I really feared the coming king because I know what kind of man he is. And the king says, nah, your very words betray you. You don't believe the very words that are coming out of your mouth. Because if you actually believe that I was this hard nobleman, who now king, that I take stuff that's not mine, you would have done what I've asked you to do. You would have at least put it in the bank so it could earn just a little bit of interest. But no, you took it and just covered it at home. Now, what do you imagine the servant did in his own time when he just went home and covered up the blanket, covered up this money with the blanket? Did whatever he wanted to do. He did his own thing. You can imagine the other two servants receiving that that pound of silver and beginning to contemplate, okay, how can I double down on this? How can I get after this? How can I invest this? Where can I go? Who do I know? What do I do? Their whole, their whole passion and energy was bent on following through with the expectation of the king. But not this guy who just took it home. He wasn't doing anything that the king wanted. He just kept it at home doing his own thing, making his own profits. Who knows? But the point is, his very words betrayed him. And the king says, no, you, you don't believe what you said because if you did, you would have done what I asked you to do. You would have done what I asked you to do. We don't teach stuff like this often. And I imagine it's, partly because it kind of makes us squirm a little bit, doesn't it? 
that God's gonna hold us accountable with what he's given to us. Um, we like to think of ourselves that when Christ returned, we're all just gonna be the same. Uh, and, and part of that's true, but we squirm with texts like this when Jesus says, no, I, I'm gonna be holding people account to what I have entrusted to you, this gift of grace that you have been given. But even though we might wanna avoid it, it makes it no less true. Uh, let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. Remember, I'll read back in verse 31 again. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. What will he do when he gets there? All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand, the goats at his left hand. Listen, when, when the king returns, he will bring that kind of judgment and there is some clarification there we'll get into a second, but the, the, the clarity here for us is that he will be discerning in his judgment. He will weigh what we have done. Even, uh, even Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul talks about his own mission. He says this, so whether we are in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please Jesus. Right? He says, my ambition is, is to please Jesus, which is, I'm gonna do everything he, I can to fulfill his expectation for me on this side of eternity. Verse 10, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. And Paul's talking about himself. Paul says, in my, even in my redemption as the son of God, that is secure, but being on mission for Christ, I will be weighed. I, I will stand before Jesus and he will ask me, what did you do with what I, was, I have given you? We will each receive whatever we de deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. That was Paul's motivation is, his expectation that the king is coming and the king is gonna ask him, what did you do with it? What did you do with it? In other places, Paul would say, you know what, I beat my body and make it my slave. I'm gonna run the race as pursuing the prize so when I cross the finish line, I wouldn't have lost it, right? I am seeking that crown of life, that reward that Jesus will give to me on that, on that day. So here's the truth that we can discern from this parable. All of us will be rewarded on how we have invested what Jesus has given to us as his children, as his servants. This has nothing to do with earning our salvation. That is secure in Christ, right? We, this isn't Jesus saying, oh, you're saved now because you worked really hard for me and you invested thoroughly. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, but everything you, everything, this has everything to do with what we do with his salvation, with his grace, and with his mercy. This is Jesus saying, listen, I have given you my very righteousness. I have given you my word. I have given you myself. Now when I come back, I'm gonna ask you, what have you done with it? How have you multiplied what I have given in the lives of other people? 
and we will be rewarded based upon what we have done, just like the servants were. Gosh, we don't like to think of it in that way. I don't think there's going to be jealousy in eternity. I think we're going to be rejoice in how God is glorified and those who've been rewarded and been for the responsibility what Christ has given to them. But no less, um, we will be rewarded based upon what we have done in investing what Christ has given to us. And so the question for us is, how have we managed or how have we invested this treasure we have been given in the lives of other people? What have we done with what Christ has given to us so lavishly? That's a tough question, isn't it? So there was a dad there was a dad, and this dad had to run a few errands. And this dad has three kids. And so he went to the stairwell because all of them were upstairs at the moment. And he said, hey, listen, I've got to go run a few errands. I'm going to be back in a few hours. But I need you to know my expectation is while I'm gone, you do all of your chores. And by the way, unload the dishwasher and reload it. Okay. And so um, they all say, okay, understood. Yeah, we've got it, right? And so the dad goes out, runs his errands. After a few hours, the dad returns home and says, hey, could y'all just come downstairs? We're gonna have a little meeting in the living room. First one comes down really quickly. Uh, Second one takes a little time, but shows up the third one. I have to call again, or the dad has to call again. This isn't about me, folks. It's not about my children. Um, But the third one stays up and the dad has to go, hey, listen, I asked you to come down, come on down. The last one comes down kind of sheepishly and they all sit on the couch. And and I say, hey, uh, did you get your chores done? Right? Did you get your chores done and did you get to the extra stuff I asked you to do while I was gone? And the first one just out of the gate. uh, Absolutely, dad, I got them done and I was able to, Um, I went ahead and unloaded the dishwasher, but I didn't refill it because I wanted my sisters to have stuff to do as well, right? I've left that for them. Um, And then the the, uh, second one says, uh, you know what? I was able able to get most of my chores done and I loaded a few of the dishes. And I was like, great. That was, man, both of y'all have done a great job, right? And, And the third one, the third one can't look at my face but not my face, not mine. It's the other dad, the dad in the story, not me. Uh, the other one, this never happens at my house, by the way. Um, the, the third one says, uh, I, didn't, I didn't get any of it done. I didn't get any of it done. Now, it would make perfect sense, right? For as a dad at that moment to recognize how each of those kids either responsibly or irresponsibly managed what I had given them to do, right? It it would make perfect sense for me to that first child to say, listen, man, you did an excellent job. You did everything that I asked you to do and a little more. You know what? Um, I'm gonna double your allowance this month. Uh, And it make perfect sense for the second one for me to say, you know what, I, I really appreciate you really working hard and getting as much as you can done. I still expect you to do more, but, you know, well done. Uh, and, and it would be perfectly acceptable for me for the, 
for that, man, I keep on just betraying myself here. Um, uh, That last child to say, you didn't do anything? You didn't do anything? And and don't don't you have respect for your dad? And it would be perfectly acceptable for me to say, you know what? You're not getting your allowance this month. Um, in, in fact, I'm gonna take your allowance and divide it between your sisters or give it to the first one who did above and beyond. It makes sense, doesn't it? In the same way, Jesus is saying, listen, it makes sense that if, I've, if I have called you as my people to steward the things that I've entrusted into your care until I return, that it's, it's absolutely acceptable for me to say, listen, well done or not well done. It's absolutely acceptable for me to reward the faithfulness to invest in the things that I have given to you. It's much the same way. And then we get to verse 27. There are two, two kinds of people in this parable. There are the servants and then there are the, the enemies of this king. Verse 27 And as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king. Can I just say Jesus is about to say these words out loud. These are Jesus' words. He says, as for those enemies, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Execute them right here in front of me. Man, that's hard. The clear message of that verse is this, that certainly all those who oppose Jesus, either directly or passively, will receive what they're due. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. We sometimes envision Jesus God is love, and that is true. And Jesus embodied everything that it means to be full of grace and compassion and empathy. We, we have the words of the author of Hebrews says that Jesus knows how to empathize with all of us because he tasted temptation just like we did, even though he didn't send one bit. We, we envision this Jesus as this snuggly, cuddly person who would never say something like this, and yet we have these words of Jesus How is it so that the the one who can say, listen, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you now says, I'm a lot like that nobleman who returns as king and annihilates his enemies. How is it? What we know from the scripture is that when Jesus came as that little baby, He came to fulfill what Paul writes about in chapter two of Romans when he says, the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance. We see the kindness of God in the sending of the son, God with us, Emmanuel. And in the teaching and the proclamation of the gospel and the whole life of Jesus, he says, I didn't didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. It's John 3, 17. That was embodied in his his earthly ministry. Every waking moment that he walked with his disciples and taught along the way and, and every city and town that he went to was a billboard of saying, I am God's love. I am his mercy and his grace. I am his kindness towards you. Repent and believe while you can. That was his first coming. But Jesus is saying here in verse 27, 
there is a second coming. And everything that we know about the second coming, he doesn't come as a cuddly little baby. He comes in power to take his throne. Revelation says he comes with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that when he comes, he comes to sit on his throne and he will bring judgment. He will, he will hold us accountable to what he has given us and then he will judge those who have, po- have opposed him and fulfill the promise of sin, which is death. What do we do with that? What do we do with all of that? There are two responses that I want us to consider this morning. Um, as we receive this parable. The first is, will we repent of all the vestiges of rebellion and fruitlessness in our own life? Will you take moments to invite the Spirit of God and say, expose in my own life as a follower of your son Jesus where he is not king? Where I have not given him rule over that realm in my heart or my life it might be your family, it might be your vocation, your relationships, whatever. It might be the, the inner workings of your own heart. But would you be willing and eager with great ambition to repent of that kind of rebellion and fruitlessness? Lord, I don't want to be fruitless. In what ways, in what ways and where in your life have you been fruitless? Are we willing as his church to say, we repent of that? We repent of that. The second response that I want us to consider is this, bearing verse 27 in mind. If that's a reality, that when Jesus comes, he will bring swift judgment against those who have rejected him and rebelled against him. Until he returns, will we, with great empathy, intentionally move towards those who are rebellious and rejected Christ so that they can see Jesus the way we see Jesus? Rather than staying afar as judges against them, will we move towards them? Because we don't want them to inherit what is theirs when Jesus returns. We don't want them to face that kind of judgment. Will we move towards them in that way? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, again, your word. We need it. We need it. We need to wake up. We need to be moved. We need to be shaped by the power of your spirit through the receiving of your word. And so we ask you to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.